0: This is KaganX In-Depth. I'm Mike Simpson. And I'm Charles Feldman. Uh, Welcome to our old friends listening on uh, 1070 uh, AM and to our new friends at 97.1 FM. Welcome. Instagram already on the hot seat for reports that it was helping to drive depression among teens. This is rolling out a new feature today. It will prompt young users to take a break. Now, your kids might not even pay attention to you So why should they pay attention to the app? We'll go in-depth. Early reports on the Omicron variant could, could be hopeful. It's mostly producing mild illnesses, but it also seems to be more transmissible. So, what does that mean in the long run? We'll also take a closer look at that video chat today between Joe Biden and Vladimir Putin and if Eastern Europe really is on the brink of a new war. Latinx was supposed to be a more
1: inclusive, respectful way to refer to Latinos. It was quickly embraced by Democrats and liberals. Turns out a lot of Latinos, they don't like the term, they don't use it. The latest in pandemic supply chain disruptions. New York City has a cream cheese shortage and how retail stores are manipul- manipulating you into spending more money by playing different types of music. You
0: know, of all the stories we're doing today... The cream cheese? The cream cheese shortage really just gets me the most. Maybe if they didn't put a pound on each bagel, they'd have Maybe. more. <laughs> just... <laughs> Well, it's supposed to be a schmear, <laughs> yeah, a little bit, a little not, bit, not a whole bunch. Lop it on there. Okay, we'll get to that later. We start though with Instagram. Ryan Mack is the tech reporter for the New York Times. Ryan, thanks for being with us. Um, so, what exactly is Instagram doing? It, it's telling kids to to take a break, really.
2: Yeah. So it's a couple of announcements that the that the company made today. One of them is this uh, take a break feature, which they've actually already talked about in the past, but they're kind of rolling it out to the US, Australia, Canada, and some other English speaking countries. Um, basically, if uh, you scroll too much um, and you're going through your feed, it will come up with a prompt that says, maybe you need to take a break. And uh, you can kind of uh, accept that and put a time limit, time limit on yourself, or you can just kind of ignore it, I guess. And uh, yeah, that was one of the announcements today.
1: How much is too much?
2: Well, it, it kind of lets the user decide, I guess. So you can set a daily time limit of 30 minutes to three hours, I guess. Um, three hours is a lot of time, but I'm sure there's someone out there that's spending that much time on Instagram. But uh, it's kind of up to the user to, to decide. And um, yeah, it's it's very much an opt-in type feature.
0: So why now? Why are they doing this now?
2: Right. And so you got to look at um, the the pressure the company is under. Tomorrow, uh, the head of Instagram, Adam Masseri, is testifying uh, in front of a Senate subcommittee um, uh, tomorrow afternoon. And I think the company probably wants something for him to talk about, something to kind of hang his hat on, to say that the company is doing something to protect children and protect teens. Um, Bear in mind, this comes after, months of pressure um, stemming from the reporting around the Facebook files, those leaked files from whistleblower Frances Haugen, who uh, went public with her story. Um, and in those papers, there was a lot of research showing that Facebook and Instagram um, was aware, I guess, of of its harm towards some groups of teens um, and teen teen girls specifically. So, yeah, that's in response to that.
1: So rather than prompting the teens where they could just say, No. Uh, What about more parental controls or something like that? Why not tell mom and dad how much time the kid is spending on Instagram? Is that one of the things that that they're working on? Yeah.
2: So that's one of the things they also announced today that they're going to roll out, I think, next year, I think in March, that parents are going to get the option to, I guess, monitor their children's activity on Instagram um, with, I guess, the amount of time, uh, set time limits. Um, I think it's kind of still TBD how. A parent's account gets linked to their children's account. I'm sure that if you're a teen on Instagram, you don't want to link your account it's to your last parent thing yeah. <laughs> uh, to <laughs> surveil you. But um, yeah, so I think they're still they're figuring out the kinks to that. And again, that's going to be an opt-in feature. So that's not going to be required for teens on Instagram because you only have to be about 13 and up to use Instagram. But it's one of the things that they're trying out.
0: So does anybody think this is all going to work?
2: Um, I think there's certainly a lot of skeptics. I think Facebook believes this is the first step towards, I guess, a safer Instagram. I keep calling it Facebook, but it's actually meta now. Um, ah, yes. Its, meta, yes. <laughs> yeah. Towards a safer Instagram, safer platform, and um, giving people and children the opportunity to use those controls. I think it still remains up in the air as to whether or not children will willingly do this stuff, but um,
0: I guess we'll have to wait and see. Ryan Mack, tech reporter for The New York Times. Hey, Ryan, by the way, before you go, are you having yeah. any difficulty getting cream trees? That's the big story. <laughs> I have not tried. I
2: was going to say something earlier, but I should maybe go get It's going to run out lunch. right yeah, now. Yeah, stock,
0: stock up yeah. because, okay. you know, <laughs> it's bad. <laughs> it's bad out there. <laughs> okay. Uh, when we come back, could the uh, Omicron COVID variant turn out to be a lot less scary than we first thought? You're listening to X In-Depth. He's Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. Panic. There's a cream cheese shortage. We'll oh, talk no.
1: about that later on.
0: But that's good news if you're a lot. <laughs> <laughs> Great. <laughs> you're always
1: finding the upside. Yeah,
0: it's a good, it's a good part of
1: it. And then uh, Pizza Hut is sticking California customers with a special surcharge. And it's not the only business around passing on the high costs of working in the Golden State. So we'll talk about that one as well.
0: Right now, though, the early reports out of South Africa seem... Like they could be hopeful that the much dreaded Omicron COVID variant might not be as bad as we all feared. Uh, After all, the variant seems to be producing much uh, milder sickness in the people who catch it. So what does that mean going forward? With us now is Dr. Emily Gurley, who's an epidemiologist and global health scientist at the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. Doctor, thanks for being with us. So, you know, I know uh, what? Two weeks ago, it was that long ago, when uh, we first learned about this particular variant, everybody said it's going to take a few weeks to kind of figure out what it is and isn't doing. So we're now kind of at that two-week threshold. What do we know for sure?
3: (laughs) Well, it's still early days, but we do see in South Africa, as you mentioned, that folks who have been infected aren't severely ill. There are some caveats to that. Um, the first is, you know, we don't know much about uh, you know, who these patients are. Sometimes um, some first, you know, some of the first people infected could be younger people who wouldn't we wouldn't expect to be severely ill anyway. Um, so it's still early days. We also know that sometimes hospitalization lags uh, quite far behind infection. So I, I think we're still in wait and see, but I would agree with you that the, the information we have so far is encouraging. Okay. So- I think, the, yeah, the way to think about this, though, it's we're in a different stage of the pandemic now when we think about these variants. And the, the epidemiologic pattern that we see is a combination of both the potential of the virus and the people who are being infected. So, what kind of prior immunity do they have? Um, Because most of us now in many parts of the world have some prior immunity. So we're learning more about how Omicron is combining uh, with the immunity profile, at least in South Africa.
1: Okay, so we're waiting on the, the older or the immunocompromised people to see if that's going to be worse for them. But maybe we can bank on it, hopefully being milder cases. Um, we're also looking, like you said, to see if, if reinfection and prior immunity is a thing that's going to hold. Uh, do we think it's it's more highly transmissible? And if so, what does that mean for us?
3: So we know that in South Africa, in this context, most people have been infected before, So the fact that we're seeing increased numbers of cases with Omicron suggests that it does a good job at getting around some antibody responses. Um, Whether or not it's more transmissible, we don't really know. Again, that's a property of the virus that's difficult to disentangle from um, its ability to to reinfect people. Um, So again, I think we're still waiting a bit on that. But it's it's obviously, uh, you know, it's transmitting just fine there and in a population uh, of people who who all have some some pre-existing immunity.
0: Do have we gotten to the point in the pandemic where we need to stop being so concerned about transmission and really just be laser focused on the potential severity issue. And and I ask that because, you know, as you know, uh, some coronaviruses cause the common cold. People go get that all the time. We all know people in offices uh, who (laughs) seem to be perpetually sick with the common cold. Uh, Do we need to get to the point, if we're not already, with the coronavirus, where we say, okay, a lot of people are getting it, but it's not that big a deal?
3: Um. I definitely think there could be a lot of value in setting public health goals that focus on severe disease and mortality. So, um, and I and I think you know part of the reason those uh, that would be a good idea is so that we we have a common goal in mind. You know, uh, coming together around uh, um, goals that are solely based on and infection um, are difficult, (laughs) right? Uh, Because not all infections are are per se a problem. So so I really agree that that we should get to some public health goals uh, focused on severity. Although that's gonna take a lot of conversation, right? To decide what our goal should be, but I think we should get there. Vaccines are some of the best tools that we have to reduce uh severity and 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 mortality but we also have monoclonal uh therapies and hopefully more antivirals um so we're going to need a more comprehensive strategy that i that i agree is is focused on the real outcomes that we're most worried about
1: Dr. Emily Gurley, epidemiologist, global health scientist, Johns Hopkins, Bloomberg School of Public Health. And we've had the discussion a whole bunch. What does a case mean? Right. A case yeah. can mean dozen different outcomes. Sure. So,
0: so and, and, and as she said, I mean, there is value to say, well, is that particular variant causing more people to be hospitalized, to die? Uh, that's really bad. More people testing positive on a take home test. Maybe it doesn't mean that much, at least going forward. Mm-hmm. Talking about going forward. When we come back, Vladimir Putin, Joe Biden, virtual chat, not about cream cheese.
1: This is KNX
0: In-Depth along with Charles Feldman. I'm Mike Simpson. A little bit later in the show, you are being manipulated, not just you, Mike and me too. Every time we walk into a retail store or a mall or a grocery store, And it's all about the music. We'll explain that. And before we get to that, turns out most Latinos absolutely despise the term Latinx that's been pushed by political liberals. For
1: years. Right now, though, President Biden told his Russian counterparts, Vladimir Putin, if he invades Ukraine, if Putin does it, at least 100,000 Russian troops are massed along the border. Uh, Russia's going to face isolation and the harshest possible economic sanctions. Is that enough to ward him off? Uh, Max Bergman, senior fellow and director of the Moscow Project at the Center for American Progress, before that served in the U.S. State Department during the Obama administration. Max, thanks for being with us. So uh, is that enough? Because it doesn't seem to too many people like Putin's over there bluffing. I mean, he wants something out of this.
4: So I'm not sure it's going to be enough. And I'm not sure there's actually enough that we could do short of of threatening uh, uh, military conflict with Russia, which is not something that I think any American president would actually be prepared to do over Ukraine. Uh, You know, let's be clear for for Vladimir Putin, Russia, uh, Ukraine is seen as sort of an integral part of Russia. He's a Russian nationalist and wants to sort of keep Ukraine within uh, Russia's orbit. And on the present course, his strategy is failing. Ukraine is uh, has a democratically elected government wants to be aligned with Europe, uh, and so he's amassed nearly, uh, you know, as many as 175,000 forces around Ukraine. You know, this is a a force that's larger than uh, what the U.S. invaded Iraq with in 2003, and by all indications, looks like it is ready to go. Now, I think what Biden was trying to do on this call was to say, like, look, if you go forward it is going to be devastation for your economy. And the U S has a number of uh, really of strong levers that it can use uh, against uh, Russia, you know, setting it off from Swift, which is, you know, basically Visa and MasterCard uh, blocking its access to the debt markets. And then also going after all the rich Russian oligarchs that, you know, park their money in London and New York and other places uh, and then starting to seize those assets. So there's a lot the U S can do as well as diplomatic isolation, but you know, At a certain point, this just becomes a political calculus for the Kremlin, and we'll see what happens.
0: Well, uh, and as I understand it, uh, what Putin has been doing is he's been moving troops sort of in and and out, right? I mean, he's, he's replaced some, he's taken some back, he's put some more in. And it sounds like he's playing this very sort of sophisticated game so that everybody is left guessing what he's doing.
4: Well, so I, that's what he did. So beginning in March of last year, we started to see a, a major troop buildup of forces. And then, you know, he, he then a lot of the forces deployed out. But all we've seen over this fall is, is no, no forces leaving. It's just been adding and adding. And what we're talking about, you know, Russia is a huge country. And so when you start seeing forces that are normally based, you know, sort of along the Pacific, all the way, you know, on Russia's east, starting to come to Ukraine, uh, uh, to in Ukraine's border, it start raises a lot of alarm bells. And then you start seeing tanks and other things start getting kitted out like they're ready to roll, like they're getting ready for combat, not the sort of, you know, they're starting to put cages on them so they can like stop mortars. Now, it's, that's not the normal thing you would do if this is just sort of a, an intimidation exercise. So the Russian forces increasingly look like that they are ready to mount an invasion now the question is whether an order will come from the kremlin to go and i think what this call was about was biden saying you need to know that if you go forward president putin this is this is you know you you are going to be treated like iran you are going to uh enter into basically uh uh, isolation and strong economic sanctions that are going to crater your economy and he's got to calculate whether it's worth that risk to him and uh, you know i'm not sure which way he's going to come down but what i do know is Putin has taken a lot of risky gambles that haven't always paid off. Uh, in, you know, Intervening in Syria may have worked out, but intervening in Ukraine in 2014, um, when he seized Crimea, invaded Ukraine, You know, the fact that he has to potentially do it again, I think that, that didn't necessarily pay out for him.
1: Max Bergman is a senior fellow and director of the Moscow Project at the Center for American Progress. Before that, served in the U.S. State Department during the Obama administration.
0: Well, a little bit later in the show... The earth-shattering news of a an alleged shortage of cream cheese. You picked your story today, didn't you? Yeah, cream. I mean, that's <laughs> that's really significant. Yes. I mean, if we if, weren't worried before. Now we are. No, if you, yeah, I mean, if you get a bagel and you don't have cream cheese, what are you going to do? It's you give of the dry. bagel back. No, well, not not me. I paid for the bagel. <laughs> I want the cream cheese. This is KNX In-Depth. He is Mike Simpson. I'm
1: Charles Feldman. So, Pizza Hut does it. Frontier Communications, the cable company, does it. Uh, tons of restaurants, they do it. The businesses adding surcharges to final bills for products and services. A lot of cases, the surcharges are only aimed at us, California customers. They're looking to pass along the high cost of operating in the Golden States, but without fully explaining what those charges are for.
0: Now, surcharges are not new, of course. Neither are higher costs for Californians, where everything, as we know, more expensive. So are companies wrong to be trying to sneak through these surcharges? And are they really sneaking them through uh, Pizza Hut, uh, both at the corporate level and at local stores? It, it, uh, it has confirmed that it charges a California unique surcharge, uh, they say, to help cover higher business costs with us is Christopher Thornberg who's the founding partner of LA based Beacon Economics Christopher thanks for being with us so uh, i guess part of me thinks as we just said i mean everything is more expensive here it seems like it anyway in california so what is wrong with what some places apparently like pizza hut are doing
5: well uh, to your point is it wrong um yes things are more expensive here and they're more expensive largely because the cost of producing these goods is more expensive. And I mean that from the ground underneath that pizza hut you were just talking to, up to and including, of course, the people who are making those pizzas and uh, delivering them. Wage costs in the state are significantly higher than in other parts of the United States. And that can be boiled down to one thing, a, a lack of labor, uh, which in turn is driven by a lack of housing. So um, we continue to go out of our way to make sure we don't build enough housing. We thus deny our local businesses enough workers, and as a result of that, we pay more.
1: I guess some customers, though, feel like they're kind of pulling a fast one on them, though, because it's 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 at the bottom of the bill, and you'd have to go look for it to find it. And, like, you don't expect it to be there, and suddenly what you expect to pay is more expensive because of this surcharge. Uh, but why not raise the list price for something? Is it just because there's a price war out there between everybody, and you want it to look low, and then, oh, you get me on the back end, and I go, oh, yeah, there's my California yeah, well, surcharge.
5: Okay. Exactly, and there's a term for that. It's called gotcha capitalism, right? And <laughs> you know, us. the cable companies <laughs> have been guilty of that. And now we know about the hotels and their "quote unquote" resort fee that doesn't show up until you get there. So uh, people are starting to get used to the, these shenanigans, and, and I think you're paying a little bit more attention. Why don't they just put it up front? Well, there's a couple reasons. One could be that there are national advertising campaigns. For example, Pizza Hut obviously will advertise say on the Monday night football game and they will give prices that are good across the United States. But of course the chart price they could charge in Kansas and the price they need to charge in California are completely different. So this is maybe one of the games they play or or to your point, it's a way of, of, shall you say, hiding the cost until it's, it's too late. Um, Let the buyer beware is, is obviously something we all have to keep track of.
0: So would it be, to some, in some sense, smarter if a national company like a Pizza Hut just stopped putting their prices on national commercials and just you know advertise how good their product was and go on from there? And then it would be more difficult for anybody here to accuse them of trying to sneak through a, a de facto increase.
5: Well, you got to remember what we're talking about here. We're talking about Pizza Hut. And Pizza Hut, of course, like Domino's and Caesars, for example, Little Caesars, they compete on price. I mean, look, let's face it. We don't go to Pizza Hut because we think we're going to get the best pizza in the world. We go to Pizza Hut because we can get a lot of pizza and it's cheap. Um, And so when you are in that kind of, shall we say, competitive framework, it's hard to not talk about your prices. It's something you have to do.
1: Does the only thing that ends up changing this uh, is enough complaints? And even then, maybe not, because everybody hates the resort <laughs> fee and that hasn't changed. Yeah, you know, okay, that gets tagged exactly.
5: on. Yeah, yeah, I don't know. I, I, it depends on the government, right? I mean, there is a question to be asked about whether or not it's fair to, shall we say, not inform people of charges they are going to end up on that final bill. Um, to me, it is a little disingenuous if you truly weren't expecting it. But then again, I think we all have to be a little bit more careful about searching for prices and making sure we know what we get into, whether it's a hotel room or a or a, shall we say, meat lover's pizza with extra jalapenos.
1: You know, you did do a great ad for Pizza Hut during this. A lot of yeah. pizza, and it's cheap. <laughs> yeah. yeah. They should Slow just on. run with that line. Uh, Christopher Thornburg, founding partner of L.A.-based Beacon Economics. Christopher, yeah. thanks.
0: <laughs> They're going to rush to hire him to do their ad <laughs> <Sorry>. campaign. <laughs> we got a slogan for you. Coming up, uh, Latinx. It was supposed to be the uh, progressive, forward-thinking, respectful way to refer to the broader Latino community, then Latinos had their say. They're not fans.
1: This is KNX
0: in depth. Mike Simpson and Charles Feldman. As Democratic candidates and strategists are looking to gain more minority voters, a number have uh, adopted the term Latinx in their messaging to demonstrate social awareness. But it turns out that these efforts may have backfired.
1: Yeah, a new national poll shows 40% of Hispanic voters say the term bothers or even offends them. 30% say that they are less likely to support a candidate or their position that uses the term when discussing a large body of people.
0: Giancarlo Sopo is a Republican media strategist. He's a Cuban-American and was director of national Hispanic advertising for the Trump 2020 campaign. Giancarlo, thanks for being with us.
6: Hey, great to be with you.
0: So I have to admit, uh, uh, Latinx always sounded to me a little bit like a Marvel movie. I I mean, where did it come from?
6: You know, no no one's really sure uh, exactly where it came from. The best theory is that it came up, started on message boards in the mid-2000s as a way uh, to abbreviate. Instead of writing out Latinos and Latinas, uh, people would just write Latinx. or, Or sometimes they would also write Latin ampersand, you know, like the at sign. Uh, and so that's like the best guess as to where it came from. And then it started appearing in academic literature, and somehow it skipped over from academic literature to uh, corporate diversity and inclusion departments and the DNC and even President Biden using it on his uh, 2020 campaign and as uh, president now in the White House. And it's, uh, it's been very controversial.
1: Yeah. So maybe positives are reach out to Latino voters in a more general, neutral way. And that's what people were trying to do. But has it now come across to some people as this, you know, academic talk? And if we don't use it, why are you using it? That kind of thing.
6: Yeah, I mean, it's just very bizarre because Spanish, the Spanish language by its very nature is gendered. It has it's a grammatically gendered language, like most romance languages, whether it's French or Italian, uh, you know, Spanish has grammatical gender. So if you were to start changing that, you would literally have to just deconstruct the entire language because uh, the, the language doesn't work. Like I'm sitting on a chair right now. The word for chair in Spanish is la silla and it has, uh, it, it's grammatically feminine. So if we were to make, started working, like, you know, being preoccupied with grammatical gender in Spanish, you would have to just dismantle the entire language. It doesn't work. And then so to your average person, uh, especially people who are Spanish speakers, who want to conserve the language and pass it down uh, from generation to generation, it just feels like a very uh, inauthentic imposition on them and culturally insensitive, almost as a way of, 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 of telling people that your, your language or the, your culture is insufficiently progressive. We know better. Uh, and, and that just really rubs Latinos the wrong way. And we're seeing it in the polling.
0: But, as you pointed out in the beginning, the term Latinx came about because there was a, a desire, at least on the part of some, to have a, a shortcut so that they wouldn't have to account for male and female genderism when they were discussing things. Is there an alternative shortcut that has been suggested that might be to uh, the Hispanic community less offensive?
6: Well, when you say Latinos as a, as a plural, it includes everyone— Of any gender. Uh, So that that one works. Uh, Other terms could just be Hispanic, uh, which is, uh, according to the Ben Dixon and Amandi poll, uh, two-thirds of people of Latin American origin. That's the preferred term uh, to refer to them Hispanic. Or uh, you could also just be more precise and refer to people as Mexican Americans, uh, Puerto Rican, or Dominican Americans, uh, that usually people prefer to be identified by their country of origin, or just American. I mean, that's uh, that's what we're here for, after all. So, there there are different ways to do it, uh, and there are ways to do it that are inclusive and they're uh, you know uh, very supportive of, of people's cultural preferences.
1: When these arguments get going, some say Hispanic doesn't work because it's it's you know tied to Spain. But you said you know two thirds support that. So, is someone just always unhappy no matter what? <laughs> <laughs>
6: You know, it's funny. So the polls show that most Hispanics don't really have a very strong preference between Hispanic or Latino. They tend to prefer Hispanic over Latino, but they're general like most people are fine with either language. I'm sorry, with, with either term. Uh, but, they, but like you guys said at, at the at the at the start of the segment, uh, what they don't definitely don't want is to be called Latinx, which just feels like an astroturf word. Like you guys said, it just sounds like a very strange label. Uh, yeah, I've heard people say online that it sounds like a, a Kleenex brand or some kind of bleach product. Uh, somebody said yesterday that it sounds like a porn site. Uh, so it just sounds like a very, it's, it's a very strange imposition on the language. And we would just prefer for people not to call us that.
1: So why do you think some on the other side of the political aisle from you insist on still using it or using it in certain situations? If, again, the polling shows that people just... They don't like it, or if they don't even use it, maybe they maybe they don't feel one way or another. But it's like, still, if you're sitting in the crowd and you're going, I don't even use that.
6: Yeah. So sometimes, like uh, those of us who work in politics, uh, we get locked into these echo chambers of people who think like us. And I, I'd say to my friends on the other side of the aisle, uh, they're, they're the same thing happens to them. They're in like these a corridor echo chambers in like New York and in D.C. With people from academia and people with graduate degrees who, on cultural matters, just couldn't be more far removed from your average Latina who just came home from a long day at work and just wants to hang out at home and watch like telenovelas. Uh, Just they're they're just like culturally very distant from these folks. And, you know, let's give them the benefit of the doubt. They're trying to be inclusive maybe they don't understand the Spanish language or or they don't fully appreciate that just the term Latinos on its own is already inclusive of everyone of every gender. Um, But, you know, that's kind of, that's kind of what happens. Sometimes those of us who work in politics, we get into these bubbles and kind of lose touch with like what average people and in the middle of the country, what they think about things.
1: Telemundo, um, Univision, what do they use? Because you were probably targeting them for ads, right? So maybe you just yeah. use what the media representation uses if, if they think they're talking to most people anyways, which they are.
6: Yeah, it's funny. Uh, you could not pronounce this word in Spanish. If you are a Spanish- Well, yeah, X degrees, is X, right? Right, right. You would just look at it and you would pause and you'd say Latin equis or something like that. It's very hard to pronounce. Uh, most uh, these, Most of these Spanish networks, uh, they, they just say Hispanos or they would say Latinos, uh, depending on who they're speaking to. And if they're, you know, if they're speaking to Puerto Ricans, they might say Boricuas or, or Puerto Ricanos. But, you know, they, they they tend to refer, they tend to use both pan-ethnic labels. Look, the pan-ethnic labels are not perfect. Uh, everybody knows that, like, Cubans, Mexicans and Brazilians have three very different cultures and a lot of people question, why are we lumping everybody into the same label? The same thing happens with Asians, for example. Um, so they're, they're not perfect by any, by any means, but we've been using them for a while. They work, and most people, according to the polling, tend to feel comfortable with them. So um, I, I appreciate the gesture, people trying to be more inclusive, but it's just like really rubbing people the wrong way, this, this word Latinx.
1: Giancarlo Sopo, Republican media strategist, Cuban-American, director of the National Hispanic Advertising for the Trump 2020 campaign. Giancarlo, thanks. More In Depth is on the way. Another half an hour.
0: This is KNX In Depth. I'm Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. Well, there are things that, you know, go together, like bread and butter and... Bagels and lox and cream cheese, uh, but there is apparently a national crisis in the making. Because you're very worried about this. Well, yeah, I, you know, because it, it's a, apparently a shortage of, of cream cheese. But I've, hold on, let me open this. There we go. But, but someone ran gonna, downstairs. Yeah, and I, I went to the restaurant downstairs and I said, is "Blew it, through the doors, help me." He yeah, said. I said, "I said, do you have cream cheese?" And they said, "Yeah, we have cream cheese." and, and yeah, it's cream it's cheese. good. It's good.
1: It's not faking it or anything. No,
0: it's actual cream cheese, but but there's apparently a, a shortage looming.
1: Yeah, and it's in the New York City area. And it's got so bad, in some cases, bagel shop owners have had to go to New Jersey to find supplies. Joseph Yuma is the owner of F&H Dairies, a wholesaler in Brooklyn, a dairy product distributor serving most of New York City's bagel shops. Uh, Joseph, do we have a cream cheese shortage?
7: Yes, uh, big time over here in uh, New York City. Why and how bad is it? (laughs) I don't know. I'm I'm completely out. I usually have about uh, fifteen pallets worth, and I haven't been able to buy any.
0: Well, uh, how how much are we talking about when you say pallet? I I mean, how much cream cheese are we talking about?
7: So, a pallet has got two thousand pounds. So. You know, whatever it is, 30,000
0: oh, pounds. So that's bigger than the one-ounce tub I have. <laughs>
7: no, no, I'm that's... talking about the ice uh yeah. 50 pounds at a time. It's, 50
0: pounds at a time. He's dealing with a whole different world yeah, than you it, are Yeah, this is very there. different here. Yeah. Uh,
1: you say you didn't know why. It's So you call around, you try and find it, and you just there's not cream cheese to be
0: had.
7: You can't get any answers from anybody. Even the, uh, the company has no answers. So we're just waiting for to come in.
0: Now, being a a New Yorker myself, Joseph, this is uh, of epic proportions for New York City. I mean, you know, New York without a bagel and cream cheese, a schmear in the morning is really bad.
7: It's going to be panic in the streets. <laughs> <laughs> so what, even uh, Junior's uh, doesn't have any uh, cream cheese for their famous cheesecake.
0: Yeah, I was going to say for for people who who don't know, Junior's uh, cheesecake is is just a classic cheesecake, New York cheesecake. And are they running out?
7: They're running out. I saw it on the news. They, they're running out, and, and nobody's telling telling us when it's coming back.
1: So. So what are people doing? I mean, we mentioned some people are going to Jersey.
7: They're scrambling around for other brands of cream cheese, which is not the same as Philadelphia, and uh, you know, doing whatever they can. But but Joseph comes in this week.
0: But 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 I I guess the the question is, I mean, is cream cheese? Mike before was looking up how to make cream cheese. It's not
1: something I want to do. No, it's easier to just buy it. Work.
0: Yeah, I mean, is it is it particularly difficult to to make or manufacture uh, cream cheese?
7: Well, everybody wants Philadelphia cream cheese. They don't want any other brand, really, because it's it's the flavor they used to. So even if somebody else makes cream cheese, it doesn't taste the same.
0: So, so the shortage is really of one specific brand, the Philadelphia yeah, brand.
7: A, yeah, made by Kraft. It's probably the number one brand in in America. Which is what we're eating. And you, you call now. them, and they're saying
1: uh, it's uh, on its way at some point. Sorry, it's
7: on its way. We'll get it tomorrow. We wait. Nothing comes. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, I, I have a, announced, Mike has announced, we could send that it's, to you if can, you'd like. Yes. We can FedEx it. One bagel. <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> it is the problem here that nothing else is going to really work, you know? Nothing like, you want works. the bagel it's, and cream cheese. You don't want bagel and butter.
7: Yeah, that's that's true. And also, there's cream cheese spreads, you know, oxen cream cheese and vegetable cream cheese. So they can even make that. It's It's just, you know. New York is all bagel stores. There's bagel stores every five blocks. So the people love bagels in New York.
0: Well, but it, but without the cream cheese, the bagel is pretty dry, right? It's a reason for its existence. Yeah. Our boss in here, you have to have something to schmear.
7: Yeah, yeah schmear. There it is. That's a New York word for you. No, I, I
0: feel bad for you, Joseph, because, because you know we're sitting here and we're kind of munching on Our cream cheese. over. And, yeah, it's yeah. pretty. You know, it's uh, pretty good. All right,
7: I'm, I'm going to fly over. <laughs> here he comes. <laughs> He's on the plane.
1: All right, uh, Joseph Yema, owner of uh, F and H Dairies, Wholesaler in Brooklyn. Hope it gets better
0: for you. Yeah, I mean, I mean, look, New York without cream cheese is like a day without sunshine. Which is today. Which is is today. So so we match. Uh, When we come back, uh, you've been manipulated. Yes, every time you walk into a mall or a retail store, and we will explain why. This is KX In-Depth with Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. You're being
1: groomed to spend money every time you go into a mall or retail store or car dealership. We know this. But as you're doing Europe shopping over the next couple of weeks, try and pay attention to the type of music being played in particular stores. Turns out music can be a strong factor in manipulating us, the shoppers.
0: Yeah, I don't like to be manipulated. manipulator. Eh, well. Well, and there have been lots of studies over the years. What are you going to do? Well, I mean, for example, country music apparently works well at hardware stores like Home Depot. And a classical... (laughs) Buy some tools. I don't know know why that's funny, but it's funny. Uh, And classical music is effective. At a clothing store like Nordstrom. That's why they got the piano downstairs. (laughs) Is that it? Uh, Vijay Kumar Krishnan uh, chairs the marketing department at the Northern Illinois University College of Business. Uh, Thanks for being with us. So uh, are there really specific types of music? I just mentioned classical music and uh, uh, country music. Are there certain kinds that they think or know from studies get consumers to do or buy certain things?
8: hey mike and charles thanks for having me uh first uh let's get the complication out of the way you're dealing with indian accents so i do speak at 300 words a minute which is again <laughs> sonic branding for you <laughs> <laughs> right. so um n- a- a- yes no your question you know uh, you can classify music several different ways you know within the western classical western music genre you could you know divide them into classical music pop country and so on, uh, but more broadly, you could think of the classical music or music itself into Oriental music and Western music and world music and things like that so, for example, I trained by training. Uh, uh, I'm a musician from the Indian classical music background. Um, and you know I wandered through marketing advertising and things like that and eventually uh, into the world of at the intersection of music and marketing Um, so that's where i work Uh, my research is in that area uh, specifically in the area of sonic branding where you use sonic logos just like we have visual logos so i started out by saying you could classify music different ways and based on associations minds associations with you know classical music is for the bourgeois you know and and the country music is for the proletariat the common man and so on right so and therefore those associations uh, automatically over time make us recall those situations so when you think of classical music you probably think high quality somewhat esoteric somewhat uh, nerdy somewhat exclusive and things like that so when you think of brands they fall in those similar categories like nordstrom for example you won't think of classical music and walmart perhaps. You would think of uh, classical music <laughs> <in Nordstrom. Right. laughs> Yeah.
1: So, so let's say I'm in there. What does it do to me mentally? Does it make me think like I should be spending more or I'm more apt to spend more or is it just reinforcing the environment like this is a nice place and maybe I should treat myself to whatever is over here?
8: It's right. That, that's quite right. You know, uh, although I wouldn't you know use the word manipulation I would say influence you know uh, just like uh, some you know some people like bright colors some people like dark colors and you know if when you say dark color somehow you associate darkness with uh, melancholy and monotony and you know uh, the you know the woods are lovely dark and deep type of emotion right Uh, but it's got another. It's just a color, right? It's just black. I mean, it's just a color.
0: Yeah, but so, but, but but let me. But, but to kind of cut to the to the chase. I mean, so if I hear, say, uh, country music, am I likely to, to want to then buy like a hammer and nails? And if I hear classical music, music, I'm going to want to buy a a lace doily.
8: You you know, in our in our mind, we correlate things that hang together, right? You know, classical music hangs together with something more esoteric and exclusive by our conditioning and association over our lifetime. And therefore we naturally think of things that go together in that manner. However, to say that if I listen to classical music, I'm gonna buy perfume. And if I listen to you know, uh, country music, I'm looking for a um, hammer is I would say a stretch. And you could actually deconstruct this several levels down. So, for example, just like uh, the language has, you know, the alphabet has 26 letters, A through Z. Uh, You don't, you know, music has 12 letters, right? And so there are minor tones and major tones. And it turns out that even, even for musically uninitiated, the minor tones uh, seem more somber and austere and, you know, melancholic, whereas the major tones seem happy and, uh, you know, sense of Bahami. And, and this has been uh, proven in many studies from as back as 1935 Hevner study and things like that.
1: You okay. Know. So they're creating like the ambiance that they want us to—is that why like a grocery store will just play like, hey, the best of the 80s and 90s and make you feel because it's like accessible to the masses?
8: it is you know you, it is also a throwback so if you are you know uh, 40 something and and if you hear a music that was like 25 years ago it probably reminds you of your cohort group your your teens and your first crush and whatever that might have been right so and so it it it, it identifies your uh, time zone in a way yeah. right
0: Okay, but but, but I, I guess what, what I'm curious about is is uh, are there any studies that really show that this stuff actually works? Because I, I guess I guess that some of this may be happening at a subliminal level. But if I'm going to buy, you know, I don't know, a can of paint, I'm not. I don't think I'm. You paint, want to be forced by the song to buy the? Yeah, can of no, paint. <laughs> I, I just don't think that that I'm not even uh, conscious of the music that they're they're playing. I just want to get in and it's out of the store the as quickly as possible.
8: That's quite true. You know, for a functional product, I suppose, you know, you're a mission shopper at that point, you know, you have left your job half done and you want to get that can of paint and go back. You're not here to enjoy that music, right? However, if you're in a, in a situation like, you know, in, a, in Macy's or somewhere, you know, shopping and generally enjoying the ambiance, you know, if the music is slower, non-consciously you might walk a little slower and shop longer therefore and you know milliman studies show that you know the effect of rhythm similarly if if you're in a fast food joint then probably you would like the tables to be turned around if you were the shopkeeper then if you play fast music there'll be a tendency to eat faster and get out faster so which is good for your business right so our pace of activity is partly determined by the Pace of rhythm in the ambiance and things like that. If the if you're in a doctor's chamber, for example, you don't want to hear loud rock music. It's just incongruent, <laughs> right? <laughs> All right, uh, Vijay
1: Kumar Krishnan, uh, chairs the marketing department, Northern Illinois University College. Could you imagine College of Business going to your doctor? <laughs> this is going to go great. All right, uh, that is in depth for today. We'll be back tomorrow at what? one p.m.